If you've got your Bibles and you want to follow along, our lesson this morning will continue in 1 Peter chapter 2 and will be in verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, verses 4 through 10. And the title of our lesson is A Believer's Privileges. A Believer's Privileges. Now, today's verses, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, are a, a turning point or a transition in, in Peter's letter. Uh, if you'll remember, he began this letter in verses 1 through 13 talking about this great salvation. And man, I, I, as I was reviewing that this week, I, remember, I just thought, man, I really enjoyed uh, that, that part. Just talking about this great salvation that we have and the hope. I think uh, his term was, we are born again to a living hope. And uh, just, just this confidence that we should have in the blessings that are going to be ours when Jesus comes back. And then when he got to verse 14 he began to talk about the characteristics of a believer. Uh, he talked about the fact that, that we are to walk in obedience. He talked about the fact that we are to be holy. Uh, he talked about the fact that we are to walk in godly fear. And of course, as we saw, he, he talks about the fact that we are uh, to love the brethren or love our Christian brothers and, and sisters. Now, when we get to verse 11 of chapter 2, everything is going to change. He's going to begin to talk very practically about some issues. He's going to talk about marriage, uh, the relationship between a husband and wife. He's going to uh, talk about an employer-employee uh, type relationship. He's going to talk about some very, very practical <clears throat> things. But before he starts that in verse 11, here in verses 4 through 10, he stops and talks about a, the believer's privileges. Now, let's read this, and then we'll come back and begin to walk through it. Verses 4 through 10. It says, As you come to him... A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scriptures, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28, he's quoting. So the honor is for you who do believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, Psalm 118. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, it's Isaiah 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, listen, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to read that and know that's some good stuff. You don't, you don't have to be a biblical scholar. That is some wonderful and rich uh, portion of Scripture. And because of that, I'm going to take my time uh, going through it, and hopefully I can do, uh, I can do justice to it. You know, so very often when we study the Bible, we're talking about spiritual duties. Uh, you know, in other words, we're talking about what we should do for Christ or what we shouldn't do in, in the service of Christ. Many times, biblical teachers are commanding us or exhorting us to do certain things or not to behave in a certain way. But these verses right here it really has none of that. It's not commanding you to do anything. It's not commanding you 
not to do anything. This is really a list of our privileges that we have because we belong to Christ. And that's just, it's just a really nice, cool part of, of Scripture. I, I looked up the word privilege in the dictionary, and it says this, a, a privilege is a special right or advantage granted to a particular person or group. So, so the privilege, we talk about the privilege, are, are people who belong to this special group and they get certain favors, they get certain rights, they get certain benefits. And that is obviously certainly true of us. If you've been born again in Jesus Christ, born again through the living Word of God, you are in a special class. And you have been given special privileges. Uh, so that is us. We have these rich spiritual privileges in Jesus Christ. And that's what this section of Scripture is really all about. So as we go through this, this will take us more than a week. We'll probably be here at least a couple weeks, maybe three. Um, but as you go through this, try and remember that. We're not going to be talking for the next couple of weeks about what we should do or what we shouldn't do for the Lord. We're going to be talking about what He does for us. It's all about what He has done and is doing and will do uh, for you and I. And that makes it an especially rich part of Scripture. So let's start at the beginning. What is it that initiates us uh, into this special group? What is it that, that initiates us and, and brings us into this group and gives us these special privileges? Well, Peter tells us right there in verse 4, as you come to Him. Now see, we often say as Christians, I came to Christ, right? That We still say that today, and that is exactly what Peter is talking about. I mean, he was with Jesus you know, you got to remember, as Peter's writing, this man walked with Jesus for three years. He was in the inner circle. I mean, he even went with Jesus off when the others couldn't go. He heard everything that Jesus said. And he remembers Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight saying this, Come unto me, all you that labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He remembers Jesus saying in John six thirty five, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. He, he heard Jesus say in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And so he's just reiterating what he's heard. We come to Christ initially in faith. But by the way, that is not the total meaning here. This is not a one-time coming. That's not what this word means. The verb here means you come and you stay. You come and you uh, remain. Jesus in John 15, 4 through 6 said, abide. That word means to stay, remain, don't go anywhere. Abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides, whoever remains, whoever stays in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So the idea is, as you come to Him, isn't somebody walking down an aisle, praying a prayer, and then going out back out the end of their life and living the way they want to. That's not this at all. It's this idea of you come to Jesus and you abide in Jesus. You stay in Jesus. You remain in, in Jesus. So Peter says this, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, Peter is calling Christ a stone, and he's doing this because there are numerous prophecies 
in the Old Testament. And he quotes those prophecies in verses 6 through 8, as we've already read. Now, the word used here for stone is the Greek word lithos. And it, and it literally means a stone that's used in the construction of a, of a building. Now, remember, in ancient times, when they would build buildings like the pyramids or they would build uh, buildings like the temple in Jerusalem, they wouldn't use mortar. They would literally cut these stones so perfectly that they would just fit one on top of the other or one beside the other absolutely perfectly. They didn't, they didn't need any, any mortar for that. So the idea here is that you have a stone that is perfectly fit, perfectly hewn, perfectly chiseled, perfectly designed to fit exactly where it needs to go. Now, the paradox here is he calls it a living stone. And that should, we should find that kind of odd because don't we, when we, if you want to think of something that has no life, what do we say? We say somebody is stone dead, don't we? That, that means there's no chance. It's over. It's gone. There's no, I mean, the idea of a stone being living is an absolute paradox that, that one should have nothing to do with the other. But it's obvious why Peter does this because after all, the stone is Christ and Christ is alive. He's not dead. He's alive from the dead, and not only is he alive from the dead, he gives his life to those who will believe in him. And, and so this, this idea is a paradox. He's a stone because of these prophecies, but he's a living stone because he's alive from the dead. Now, some people may say, well, you know, if, if we're talking about Christ and he's alive, why did Peter use the analogy of a stone? Because Peter also wants us to see Jesus as the foundation of the church. He wants us to see him as the cornerstone of this spiritual house that's being built by, by God, uh, which we call the church. But I want you to first follow what he says. Look at verse 4 again. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Now, when Peter says rejected by men, he certainly has in mind the Jewish nation. He certainly has in mind the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the, 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 the men that were in charge, the crowds that shouted crucify him and followed those men. He, he has in mind the crucifixion, those who spit upon him and, and beat him and did all those things to him. See, they are not favored by God because they rejected this living stone. They have rejected the foundation that God chose to be, the, the one that God chose to be the foundation of his church, and in doing so, they've rejected the only one who can give them life. See, think about that for a minute. When you reject, there's, there is one, one solution, one way, one truth, one life. He is the only one that can give eternal life. You reject him, you've basically rejected the only one that can give you that life. And of course, by the way, even though Peter has those people in mind, it's the same today. Everyone who rejects him follows in the Pharisees' footsteps, follows in the Sanhedrin's footsteps. You're rejecting the only one that can give you life. Now, the idea that Peter is using here with this idea of a stone and all of this is, is very interesting. Back then, um, I just built a pole barn and, and scooter. He's not here this morning. He came over and he, and he had a transit, for those of you that know what a transit is, and he helped me lay it out, and he put up batter boards, and we put out a string. And the idea was he, he made sure that when he did it, that everything would be square and everything would be 
level. Well, back then they didn't have transits. They didn't have that kind of technology. So what they would do is they would use this idea of a cornerstone. So when they would start to build a building, there was one stone that was more important than all of the others, and this was called the cornerstone. And it, and it's, it was the most important stone because it set the level it set the angles for the rest of the, of the building. If the cornerstone was perfect, the rest of the building would be perfect. If the cornerstone was corrupt, if the, if the, if the cornerstone was malformed, then the rest of the building would have problems. I, I, I found a couple pictures online here of, of a cornerstone. And so the idea is you can see the cornerstone, if, if the angle is a right angle, then the rest of the walls are all going to line up at right angles. If, if going up, it's, a perfect, it's perfectly level going up, then the walls will be built off of that. So there's one there. Here's another uh, from 1922, another idea of a cornerstone. So see, every brick lines up with the cornerstone, both horizontally and, and vertically. So the, corners, the cornerstone was like a plumb line for the building. It sets the direction for the sides. It sets the direction for the, for the walls. Again, if the, if, the, if the angles of the cornerstone are off, the rest of the building is going to be off. If the horizontal angle is not perfect, then your walls are going to run off at a skew. If the vertical of the cornerstone is not perfect, then your walls are going to lean inward or they're going to lean outward, and, and more than likely they're going to eventually collapse. Now, Peter says this, with that in mind, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Now, th this is pretty amazing. You've got this perfect, precious, costly cornerstone. And God says, here, here's the cornerstone. This is what I'm going to build this spiritual house I call my church off of. You see, the leaders of Israel, I want you to understand, they were looking for a Messiah, weren't they? They were waiting for this cornerstone. They knew God was going to build a kingdom. That, the prophets had, had prophesied about that for, for centuries. They knew a kingdom was coming. They, they knew this Messiah, this, this Redeemer, was going to be the cornerstone. And, and they're waiting for this. They've been waiting for a long, long, long time. And here comes Jesus. And, and, and with all of their religious measuring sticks, with all of their ways that they thought they could figure out who this person was, they assessed the suitability of Jesus Christ to be the cornerstone, and they rejected him. Now think about that. The perfect cornerstone, the most costly cornerstone, and they looked at it with all their human wisdom and all their human reasoning and all their religiosity, and they said, nope, he's not the one. See, they said, you're inadequate. And, and, and he just didn't pass their, their calculations, and so they rejected him. And beyond rejecting him, their rejecting was contemptuous. Do you understand, nothing was so unthinkable to them that this man, this humble man, this weak man, this poor man, this uneducated man, that that man could be the cornerstone for God's kingdom? No way. No way. And they absolutely rejected him. It was unthinkable to them that he could possibly be the Messiah, that he could be the cornerstone. But he was. See, it doesn't matter what man, it says in the sight of God, he was chosen and he was precious. That word precious means costly and rare. He's the only one is what that word means. God had chosen him. 
You see, the idea here is that God examined him too. God sent him down here and said, and he often said, I'm only doing what my father has told me to do, right? I'm only saying what my father has told me to say. And God took, had his own measuring sticks, his own plumb line, and he measured Jesus and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He, he measured him and said, yep, he's the, he's the one. Can you imagine, just for a minute, the stupidity and the arrogance of men? It, it reminds me of a story I read one time. Two men walked into the, uh, the museum, this, this famous museum in, in, uh, in Paris, and there's all these artworks like the Mona Lisa and, and Van Gogh's and all these. And these two men walked up to an art a piece of art and the curator just happened to be standing over there on the side and he was listening to see what they might say and one man looked at that piece of art and he turned to the other man and he said I, I just don't get it I don't think much of this painting at all and the curator said to him sir if I may interrupt that painting is not on trial you are you see the world has already decided the value of that painting you're just demonstrating the inadequacy of your measuring capability See, it's kind of that way, that's the way it is with Jesus. He's not on trial, folks. He's already been determined by God to be chosen. He's already determined by God to be precious. He's already been measured by God and said, this is my son. He's not on trial. It's every man and woman who's on trial to see if we can recognize him for who he truly is. It's us that's on trial. You see, the world is going to fall, it's going to fail in that way because their measuring stick is corrupted. Just like the Pharisees. Here's an example. Now, again, I often think, you know, I come in here and, and, and I'm, I'm teaching, and sometimes I, in my mind I think, well, everybody knows these stories. Everybody's heard these stories. But I, I have to remember sometimes that, that there are new people here, and there's, times, there's things in the Bible you may not have heard. Matthew 27, 15 to 23. Jesus is, going, is getting ready to be crucified. They've already arrested him. They've already beaten him and tortured him and done a bunch of stuff to him. And at the feast, at the Passover feast, it says there was a custom that they would always release one prisoner every year. This is what it says. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And then they, and they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. Let me tell you, if that doesn't tell you something about the world's measuring stick, then nothing else does. They have this per perfect, precious, costly cornerstone. And they say, give us Barabbas. Give us a thief. Give us a robber. You see, the world has always despised what God has chosen. And they always hate what God loves. It's always been that way. Because their measuring stick is broken. Their, their heart is deceitful. Their heart is rebellious. Their heart is sick. Let me tell you, I don't want any acclaim from that kind of world. That kind of acclaim is, is worthless. They could not recognize 
the value of the most precious and perfect human being that ever walked this planet and instead chose a thief and a, and a robber. So here we've got God, he's sending Jesus, he's laying this stone, Jesus Christ, he's laying him in Zion, as the Old Testament says, or in Jerusalem, and men reject this cornerstone by crucifying him. But God has chosen him, and he is infinitely precious. So he raises him from the dead, and he makes him a living stone. He gives him the highest place of honor as the head of the corner. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone of this spiritual uh, house. And, and all of this so that Christ can begin to gather other living stones. He can begin to gather other little br- uh, bricks and stones and pieces and begin to build this church. And through this uh, people, he would make a temple, a church, an eternal dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And that's you and I, by the way. And we, by coming to him, we receive special privileges. Now, I'm going to begin to go through what some of these privileges are this morning. Like I said, we won't get through it all today. We'll probably have to pick up next week. But this is the first special privilege that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. And that is what I call union. Look at verse 1 Peter 2, 5. He says this, You yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, it's one thing to come to a living stone, yes? It's quite another to become a living stone. See, this is Peter's way of saying that when you come to Christ, you become like Christ. Did did you ever think, by the way, we are called Christians, yes? Do you understand that the word Christians means little Christ? That's exactly what that word means. It means little Christ. Folks, that's a privilege. That is a, a privilege. Listen, the ver- th- this is one thing that I don't think we think enough about. The very life that exists in Christ Jesus exists in you. I mean, think about that. The very life that exists in Christ is in you. Is there a greater spiritual privilege than that? Think about it this way. Christianity is the only religion I know of in the world where the the life of the one we worship is inside of us. Think about all these other religions. They may bow down to, to Buddha. They may bow down and pay homage to Muhammad. And we bow down and pay homage to Christ. But what's different is the very life of Christ is in us. None of these other religions teach that at all. You've never heard of anybody being in Buddha or in Muhammad. But as a Christian, you are in Christ. You have a union with him that's completely different than any other religion ever ever teaches. We have the life of Christ. We are partakers of the divine nature. Colossians 3, 4 says this, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. See, it isn't just that we worship him. It isn't just that we bow the knee to him. It isn't just that we obey him or we honor him or pay homage to him. We are united with him. What a, what a, what a statement, what a privilege, what an honor to be able to say that. Galatians 2.20, Paul says it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
again, what a, what a thought. I don't think we think about that enough. Sometimes I think we view ourselves as this is Christ and this is us, and we're serving Christ and obeying Christ and loving Christ, but that's not the picture at all. The picture is this. We are united with Him. He is in us. We are in Him. That There's something going on here that should just blow our mind, to be quite honest with you. Again, it's not just that we bow down, that we are, He is in us. We are in Him. We are sharing this eternal life. I used to have a blog years ago, and the title of that blog was Living the Eternal Life because the day you got saved, this human life, this 60 or 70 or 80 years, it became a, for an afterthought. On that day, your eternal life started. You were born again. And that life just goes right past your death and it just goes on into eternity. And that was always my question. Are you li- which life are you living? Which life is your priority? Which, one, which dog are you feeding? You remember the old, that old adage? There's two dogs fighting. Which one are you feeding? Are you feeding the temporary life? Or are you feeding the eternal life? Are you living this temporary life? Or are you living this life that's going to go on for millions and millions and millions of years? Which is more important to you? We are eternal because He is eternal. We are strong because He's strong. We are accepted because He's accepted. We will live because He lives, because He is in us. What a, what a spiritual privilege that is. Now let's follow this on a little bit further. Let's read verse 5 again. You yourselves, like living stones, you have this same life. Remember he called him a living stone. That same life is now in you. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter tells us that God is building not a physical building, but a spiritual building. Christ is the cornerstone. He is perfectly set. He is perfectly... He he fits that cornerstone perfectly. The angles are all perfect. You and I are now these additional stones. You remember the picture I put up there? You had the cornerstone and then all the bricks. We're the bricks. We're being set in place. We're being put. And God is building up the spiritual house that he calls a, a church. You see, God's the builder. And he's putting us... Listen, if you're here today, if you're in Crawfordville, if you're in Sopchoppy, if you're in Panacea, if you're at River of Life, if you're a believer, God has put you here. It isn't an accident. It isn't random chance. God is building a spiritual house and He's integrating all these pieces and parts together as only He can. You are these living stones. What an incredible thought when you think about that. Let's read Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. It says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's Paul talking about the exact same thing that Peter is. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. Paul says then, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. See, God is the, is the master builder. 
God is the contractor on this spiritual house. He's making sure who goes where. You do this, you do that. He's, he's working it all out together. We're just pieces and parts. But what a privilege. What an honor to be one of the living stones that can be a part of his church. Paul goes on, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. He's got several analogies there, but one of them is you are God's building. You know, Peter grew up going to the temple in Jerusalem. You remember one day they're leaving the temple and the disciples said, Lord, look at this building. Can you, man, what a, what a building. And what did he say? It's coming a time when one of those, it won't be one stone on top of another. By the way, it was about it was 70 AD, so that was probably about 40 years away at the time. And, and now there's just a little wall there that people go and stick little pieces of paper in. It's exactly how Jesus said it would be. And at that time, though, they were so proud of that temple because they saw that as God's house, as God's dwelling place. But God doesn't dwell in, in a place of stones. God doesn't dwell in a, in a whatever this vinyl rubber stuff is here on our, on our dome. God doesn't. That's not what he does. Acts 7, 48 through 50. By the way, this is Stephen. One of the last things that will ever come out of his mouth because when he finishes talking, they will stone him and kill him. And these are his words. He says this, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Didn't I make all this? You can't put me in a stone building. You can't, you can't put me any place like that. I, the whole, the, 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 what does he say? The earth is my footstool. See, Peter is saying in this new covenant, there's a house, all right, but it's a spiritual house. Not made of, of wood or not made of stones. It's not physical. And you and I have the privilege, the great honor and privilege of being part of that house, being one of those stones that make up the spiritual house of the living God. He dwells in his church. Let me tell you, this should cause us to love Jesus with all of our hearts. He is the only way to God. He is the only way to have eternal life. He's the only way to have a relationship with God. He is the only way that we can ever do anything acceptable to God. This is why verse 7, if you go back and read it, says he, I believe it's 7, says he is infinitely precious and costly. Infinitely precious and costly. There is no greater value in the universe than Jesus Christ. Nothing more valuable, nothing more worthy, nothing more honorable, nothing more beautiful I always go back to that parable of the man in the field. I just think that's a, it's a simple parable about the man digging in the field and he finds a treasure. And he goes and he sells all that he has to come and buy that field because he saw that was worth more than anything else he would ever have. That's a parable of the kingdom. That's Jesus. By the way, that's what happened to you when you were born again. God opened your ears. He opened your eyes. He opened your heart to see Jesus for the first time as infinitely beautiful. And you ran to him. Why not, why not the week before? Why not a year before? Because God didn't open your eyes. Because you can't see him because our hearts are broke. We're like those Pharisees. We're sick and rebellious and wicked and evil. And God opens our eyes and we see him for who he really is. I got a few final thoughts. 
I want you to think for just a moment of how many people in this world believe in God. There's a lot. By the way, atheism is a, a rarity. You'll hear a lot about it, and people write about it, but it's, it's a rarity. You look at any, any survey or any poll, vast majorities of people believe that there is a, a God. But the Bible says, even, after all, even demons believe that. Even the devil believes that. Why do so many people believe that there's a God? Well, for one, the Bible tells us nature declares His glory. I've said it often. I've always, I never could not believe in God. Just, I could just walk outside and look at the night sky and think, okay, there's no way this just happened, right? Look at the human body. I've said that often. There's no way this just happened. Somebody built this. Somebody designed that. Now, who that is is a different story. But people understand that. By the way, their, their conscience also bears witness to that. So the vast majority of people believe in God. But here's the sad thing. This vast majority of people cannot do anything that's acceptable to this God. And here's why. Because they don't know Jesus. They try rituals. They try disciplines. They try sacrifices. They make vows. They, 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 they make, they, they, what do you call those, uh, where they go for uh, pilgrimages? They make pilgrimages to, village, uh, to go to relics. They try being more virtuous. And it's all vanity. It's all in vain. Because they don't know Jesus. See, here's the thing. Look at what First Peter two five says: to offer. This is your privilege to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You don't offer anything to God that's acceptable outside of Jesus Christ. The only thing, the only way you can offer any spiritual sacrifice to God that's acceptable is through Jesus Christ. So you can be over there believing in a a God and doing the best you can, and you can be as sincere as you want to, and every prayer falls to the ground. Every offering just falls to the ground. Every ritual is just nothing. It's vanity because you're not doing it through the cornerstone. You're not doing it through Jesus Christ. You're doing it through human effort. You're doing it through human reasoning. You're doing it through religion. You're doing it through all these other ways, but you're forsaking the cornerstone. The one way that God said it's acceptable. Romans 15, 18, Paul said this, and this is why Paul said this, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Why? Because everything else is nothing. It's only what Christ does through us and what we do through Christ that we can offer anything that's acceptable to God. Here's the thing. All these people, with all their religion and all their human achievement, are no different from that crowd on crucifixion day. Because when you choose anything other than Jesus, you are saying, give me Barabbas. Give me Barabbas. And by the way, this is also true for you and I. Every time we choose the world over Jesus, we're saying, give me Barabbas. Every time we choose some worldly pleasure or some worldly temptation or something in this world, which, by the way, did you not see they chose Barabbas over Jesus? It's messed up, but we still are pulled that way by this old nature. And every time we choose something else of this world over Jesus, we're saying the same thing that crowd said, give me Barabbas. I'll take Barabbas. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. I don't know about you, but I want to choose Jesus. Every single time I want to see him for how beautiful he is. 
when I'm, when I'm brought up against a temptation and the world is pulling at me, I want to have Jesus right here. And I'm like, oh, no, I'll take him. We're not perfect. We're not perfect. I, I, we fail. We make wrong choices. I, I understand that. But let me tell you, with all of my being, I want to choose Jesus every single day of my life. And what makes that possible is our union with him. The great honor and privilege that we have that his life is in us. Let's pray. Father.